The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. Before I read our scripture, which is the 73rd Psalm, and by the way, it's a great pleasure to be with you today. My wife and I enjoyed the drive out I-20 from the Atlanta area and seeing some of the colors still left. But before I read our scripture, which will be found in Psalm 73, I want to throw out or toss out three or four questions for you to think about as you listen to the reading of the scripture. I don't know you. Uh, It's easier to preach to people you know. I love that as a pastor. Traveling about the church, I I have not always had that privilege, but it's helpful to, to know the people you're ministering to because Aristotle said you learn best from your friends. And I want you to learn from me, and I want to be your friend, though I've not met some of you. But I want to ask you this morning, how are you doing spiritually? Do you ever feel a sense of guilt because of the way you think about life and you know you shouldn't think about it that way? You ever ask the Lord, why me? Are you ever bothered by seeing bad things happen to good people while at the same time seeing good things happen? to bad people? What do you desire this morning more than anything in your life? Psalm 73 says it's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a musician. Some scholars say actually it was written by David and to be used at the dedication and celebration of Asaph's installation into his role. Doesn't matter who wrote it. We know the Holy Spirit inspired it, and it's God's word, whether David wrote it or whether Asaph wrote it. So keep that in mind and turn with me now to Psalm 73. Hear the word of the Lord. Truly, God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? 
Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, the, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task till I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you arouse, arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul is embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. <coughs> Excuse me. You will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all of your works. May God bless this reading and our understanding of his holy word. Pray with me. <coughs> Father, we ask you this morning to speak to our minds and speak to our hearts from your word. For they are indeed life to our soul. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Let me begin this morning by, by reminding you of what a strategically important thing you did this morning when you decided to come to church. Maybe it wasn't much of a decision. After all, it's Sunday and God's people generally worship on Sunday. I don't know what process you had to go through to get here. But I do want you to know that being here is a strategically important part of your life. I'm not only referring to this Sunday, of course. I'm referring to every Sunday that we gather for worship. The, you know, the truth is we do not lose one thing when we're obedient to God. On the other hand, <clears throat> we miss a great deal when we're disobedient. Now, because I don't believe you and I are that different in our, our lives, I would be surprised if you didn't identify at least with one or two of the probe questions that I threw out for you before I read the scripture. The topic this morning is the being at the right place at the right time. 
which illustrates the strategicness of coming to church. And one of the things that God's word makes clear to us is you and I were created to worship and serve him. And please keep that thought in mind as we continue to look at this psalm this morning. Now, if I'm right about my assumptions, we often find ourselves asking, are the things that we think we know, do we really know them? Do the things that we think we really know, do we really know them? We know that we're to discipline ourselves to develop a Christian mind that knows how to think like God would have us to think. We know to make that happen, of course, we have to be students of the Word, the Bible. Because it's only through the lens of the Scripture that we come to know God. And we come to know ourselves. And the only way we really can get in touch with the right picture of reality We are tempted, however, because we're sinners to know things on our own, to give our interpretation to things as though we have all the answers. As a matter of fact, if you think back in the very beginning when God created Adam and Eve, that's what got us into this mess. They were tempted to believe they could figure things out on their own, that they knew all there was to know which means they knew everything that God knows. And so Adam and Eve chose to ignore God there in the garden by not paying attention to what God had said to them. And so they reasoned like this. We don't need God. Satan, that serpent, is right. We can know everything that God knows. But the problem was that decision that day in the garden brought judgment. It brought wrath. It brought fragmentation of life. It brought chaos. It brought total misunderstanding of themselves and their children, including us. You see, the truth is, if we do not start with God in our thinking we will not end up at the right place. When we make anything other than God and his word, our standard and measure of truth, we generally end up with a lie, totally misunderstanding what's happening around us. And if if you understand what I'm saying, That means that God cannot be irrelevant to any of us in any of our lives. If truth and right understanding are important to us, then God has to be at the very center of our lives, heart, mind, body, and soul. He is God. Now, if you grasp and believe and understand how central God is in our lives, then we can know also that we're involved in a spiritual warfare. There's a war between the flesh and the spirit within us. 
we're at war with the forces of darkness. They're seeking to capture our minds and our lives. We want to believe that if God be for us, then who can be against us? But there is one who is against us. Satan, our enemy. And his great task in life is to convince us that we do not need God. Our lives can be filled with happiness all the day long without getting involved with God. No disappointments, no sorrows, no sadness, no heartbreaks, and certainly no spiritual depressions. And Satan, our enemy, would have us, even as Christians, believe that God has granted us immunity to problems. No valleys, only mountaintops for Christians. But here's the reality. There are those mountaintops of sheer ecstasy that we experience from time to time. And we feel as though everything is going just like it ought to go with no troubles, no problems. But suddenly before we know it, we're down at the bottom of the heap. We're not on that mountaintop anymore. And even though we profess to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul, and maybe we really do, that does not give us a free pass or a bypass around troubles and problems. We will have tribulation, Jesus said. Paul said it like this. We are troubled on every side. And when we do experience those troubles, it's so easy and such a temptation for us to ask, why me, Lord? Or to grumble or complain, woe is me. God gave us the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, to help us know how to think God's thoughts after him, even in times of trouble. Which brings me back to my initial statement of how strategic it is for you to be in church. Coming to church is the centerpiece of God's game plan for your life. And with what I've already said, I want us to be reminded of that very thing this morning as we look at Psalm 73. And as we do, I want you to remember that one of the keys to understanding the Psalms is to put yourself in the psalmist position, if you can, feeling what the psalmist feels as he writes, because the Psalms are poetry, and there's that subjective aspect that we have to identify with in order to, under, to grasp his meaning. But I hope you've already caught it. The questions I asked earlier are right out of Psalm 73. Now, I want you to understand this. If you want to end up in your life where the psalmist ends up in, you, in verses 27 and 28, 
you have to start out where the psalmist began. It's the only way you can end up like he ended up in verses 27 and 28. Where he said, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. That's his opening statement. Look, that's the ending. Now, look back up at verse 1 where he began. Truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart. And that's the truth. St. Ambrose once said that a just and right person, regardless of the circumstances, knows that God is good. And nothing can take that away. Now, where the psalmist benefits from this knowledge is that he can walk in the valleys as well as on the mountaintop and know that God is sovereign, that God is with him, that God is real. He can know that, and he learned that, and that's why he wrote this psalm. So you and I could benefit from his experiences. And what he wants us to know is that God is good to those who are pure in heart. That's what he wants us to know. But he has not always realized that. He says, as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped Surely we might say to the psalmist, surely not you, you're good. You're a man of God. We know you're not perfect this side of heaven, but you're a leader with special, a special role in God's kingdom. To which he said, yes, I do mean exactly what I said. My feet almost slipped. You see, it's not simply the weak who stumble and fall. Even the strong in faith can slip and fall. People like David, people like Asa, people like Peter as examples. And he goes on to confess there was a time, he said, when I looked around and I actually caught myself envying the wicked Can you believe that? This man who said, it's the pure in heart that pleased God, he said, I almost caught myself envying the wicked. He said, here's what I actually thought. The wicked have no pains in life. They're prosperous. They're sleek. They don't have problems like other people have problems. Their lives are healthy. And they're extremely wealthy. They seem to want for nothing. They don't seem to have a care in the world. They talk against God. They speak against heaven. They demonstrate a totally worldly lifestyle. They 
talk against God and they say, God can't know things. How can God know, they ask? Is there knowledge in the Most High? As their wickedness increased, it was as though their wealth increased. <laughs> they seemed to be able to get whatever their hearts desired. And I found myself envying them with that. Now, to be honest, I struggle with this. And I, I guess at some point in our lives, we all do. He said, I don't understand how I, being a righteous man, am always getting dumped on. You see, nothing was making sense to the psalmist about what he was seeing around him. And it was causing him to express the temptation in his heart to back away from God and to envy the wicked. Things got so desperate in his life that he said, I even contemplated removing myself from the people of God, the church. Why? Because verse 16 tells us. He said, when I thought to understand all of this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. Things are just not working out the way I thought they were supposed to, and it's driving me nuts. I can't fit things together. I can't connect all these dots of what I thought was the way it was supposed to be, but it's not really that way at all. And folks, I can identify with the psalmist. And I, I dare say you can as well. I wish I understood all that I know. And I don't know that much. But I wish I understood everything that I know. But honestly, there are times when I have to stop and ask myself, is what I but say I believe, do I really believe it? And what I say I believe do I really believe it? That's the question. You ever feel that way? I try to think God's thoughts after him. Try to put them together with a world and life view that helps me understand things better. But sometimes I find myself coming up with the opposite results. So I ask what am I missing? What's wrong with this scenario? My conclusions are not matching up with what I've said and I think I believe. I'm struggling to understand this and it's tripping me up. I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to be pure. I'm trying to be upright. And I'm trying to remember that God is good and gives good gifts to his children. But what I'm seeing is he's giving good things to bad people and giving bad things to good people. So here's what the psalmist is struggling with at this point if you haven't caught it. 
Why do the righteous suffer? While at the same time, the ungodly seem to prosper and experience success. And my guess is there's not a person in this room who has not asked that question in one way or another at one time or more times in your life. Well, here is where it happened when he asked that question. Being at the right place at the right time. With all that was going on in his mind and heart of trying to make sense of, the, of life, he did that strategically important thing. He didn't give up. He didn't denounce God. He didn't turn away from his faith. He realized he had a problem. And there had to be a solution because God is a God of mercy and a God of grace. So he found it. He found the answer to his question. You see, what seemed to be missing for him was he was using his own standard of interpreting things. He was seeing things as, as he, the psalmist, saw them. And what he needed to do was replace his perspective with God's perspective. The question was not, how did the psalmist see these things? The question is, how does God see these things? And he said, I didn't know that until I went into the sanctuary of God, the place of worship the place where the word was preached and the word was taught and God's people gathered around there on a regular basis to hear the word of God. That was the strategic thing that he did. He came to church. And in doing that, he began to get things back into proper perspective. He began to see how God really thought about all of this. You see how much like the psalmist we really are? He got some things right about God. He got some things right about life and reality, but he got a whole lot of things wrong. Think with me for a moment what it means to be a biblically reformed Christian. It simply means we start with God. We start with God. And we move from there to begin to develop an understanding and a view of life and reality that's centered upon God. And my friends, once we do that, as the psalmist found out, things begin to come together. The dots begin to be connected. And we really begin to see things as they really are. So what was the writer of the psalmist's mistake in beginning? Well, for a while he seemed to forget about God, at least as far as thinking about life the way God teaches us in his word to think about it. 
And see, when we fail to do that, we do what the Bible says do not do. The Bible says do not lean on your own understanding. When we try to understand things on our own, we miss God's perspective. But that's our natural tendency because we're finite sinful people and we need to be aware of that. As Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. God's ways are not always our ways. You see, my friends, and if you don't take anything home this morning but this, please remember this. How you see things or interpret reality may not be the things, the way things really are. Why? Because there's not a one of us that sees everything about every situation that we need to see in order to understand what's going on. We can't leave God out of the picture in our lives. So here's what was going on in summary with the psalmist that was causing his great tension and anxiety. First of all, he knows, but maybe without good understanding, that God is good to the upright. He started out with that. But he didn't fully understand it as he started out. He just knew, he had heard it in Sunday school, maybe, or church, that that was true. Second, he knew in his heart, he wanted to be upright. He wanted to be pure in hopes that things would work out well in his life. But when he began to experience some things that were not working out very well, he began to question what was going on. Consequently, he was not seeing things as they really were, and he was drawing wrong conclusions. Especially about the wicked prospering. He knew better than that. They don't prosper. (laughs) But he even admitted to envying the wicked. And third, and I can imagine based on this text that he was thinking something like this, God, I I believe you. I worship you. I go to church. I pray. I try to please you with my life and do the things that I think I know that you want me to do. But it isn't working. I'm right back in the rut, in in the mire, in the mud, and I'm experiencing heartache and misery. I'm missing out on the good things while I see the wicked around me enjoying those good things. You ever done anything like that? Why me, Lord? Why them? It's hard on the one hand for us to imagine someone envying the wicked. And on the other hand, questioning our faith. Psalm 73 is a tremendous psalm. It has so much in here that we can only scratch the surface, but there's some warnings for us. First of all, there's a warning, a reminder, that we have 
limited knowledge. We don't know everything there is to know. We can know more than we do know, but we'll never know everything there is to know. I remember in an interview I heard that took place between the late Dr. Francis Schaefer and his son, Frank. When Frank was interviewing him, after Francis had learned uh, of his diagnosis with terminal cancer, and his son, Frank, said, Dad, how do you deal with that? And I'll summarize it for you, but Dr. Schaefer said, Son, I don't like this notion of having cancer. I pray every day that God would take it away. But then he said, I am so glad God doesn't answer all my prayers. And Frank said, why did you say that? He said, because I don't know everything God knows. And it would scare me to death, he said, if I thought God would answer every one of my prayers. You see, we have limited knowledge. We don't know everything there is to know. The second warning is the temptation to believe that we do understand everything there is to understand. And therefore, we can make an accurate assessment and properly interpret the things that are going on around us. That's why verses 16 and 17 are such pivotal verses in this psalm. But when I thought to understand how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned their end. I tried to make sense out of all of this. I asked, why me, O oh God? Why am I not prospering like the wicked? I'm weary and I'm tired of trying to understand this. It actually appears to me that good guys finish last. I appreciate his honesty. He's not struggling with, does God exist? He's not asking that question. He's simply struggling with life in general. And you see, it's hard to keep things in perspective if we do not have God at the center of the big picture. That's what I mean about being biblically reformed Christians. We center upon God through his word And so what he does in this process is remind us of three things. First of all, we need God in our lives every day. Second, we need the word of God to guide our thinking and our living. It's the lamp unto our feet and the light to our pathway. And third, he reminds us of our need to be with God's people in worship, in church, in the sanctuary, that is, in a, a Bible-believing church that preaches and teaches the Word of God. That's another reason the Bible tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We gain perspective 
And we multiply our knowledge when we come together as the body of Christ. That's where the church comes into play. God did not make us to be believers on our own. Such as are saved are added to the body. And the psalmist said, when I finally came to myself and went to church, I was encouraged. God helped me to get things in better perspective. And God, I realized, he said, I, I had this prosperity and success thing all wrong. I should have known better. It's only the good, upright people of God who will prosper and be rewarded in the end. Though the wicked may have much in the eyes of the world, though they may prosper, those things don't finally matter. That's why your word says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now listen once again to his conclusion, beginning at verse 23. Follow, and I'll read. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works I asked you a question earlier. Maybe I didn't give you enough time to think about it, so I'll ask it again. What's the most important thing in your life? What would you say if we went around this sanctuary and let you answer that question? What is the most important thing in your life? How would you answer it? Hopefully, you would answer it like the psalmist did. The most important thing in my life is to be with God. Is that your most important thing? Is that what you want more than anything else? To be with God? Now think about what that means when I talk about being with God. What is the most tragic event in all of history that you can think about. And it wasn't the last election. What was the most tragic event in all of history that you can think about? I'll tell you. It was God forsaking God on the cross. It was when God the Father turned his back on God the Son who was suffering for sins in our place and could not look upon him as our sins were imputed to him, he forsook his Son. 
And because God did that tragic thing, in Christ, you and I can be near to God. But it took his son's death on the cross. That's the most tragic, and yet at the same time, the most, the greatest event of all history. Jesus dying on the cross. That's the price he had to pay for your and my redemption. To earn our forgiveness of sin. To allow us to be together with God. And to say with the psalmist, but as for me, it's good to be near to God. Oh, my friends, there's so much we can learn under this umbrella of Psalm 73 about being at the right place at the right time. But I'm going to quickly give you five take-homes I hope will help you remember what the psalmist said. First of all, be careful about making quick judgments in the abstract. We may not be in the right frame of mind to make a judgment at that moment. Be careful about drawing the wrong conclusion. Second, remember that there are a lot of things out there that may be pleasing to the eye that will not last forever. God's kingdom is not of this world, at least not yet, it will be. Three, please don't let the things of this world draw you away from the Lord. It's good to be near God. It's all about him. I am not my refuge and shelter in the time of storm, but God is. And I can know that as I learn to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. And I must not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And fourth, loving God is not a matter of earthly rewards, though from time to time he does give us special uh, blessings in our lives. But the truth is, at any given moment, it may appear that we're going through the great tribulation. But we can know that God is with us. And we can be near to God. And God will not turn away from us. And God will not abandon us. Five. Please remember that real happiness, real satisfaction in life comes only from being near to God who has promised never to leave us nor forsake us, but to be with us always, even to the end, that nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This means that we must learn every day to walk sensibly, sensibly and intentionally the knowledge of the presence of God in our lives. 
Could we say it any better than this? That our whole purpose and our greatest joy in life is to be near to God and in fellowship with his people? Is anything better than that? So what's left for me to say to you this morning? If there's any merit to anything that you've heard me say this morning, when you single out someone who's not here and who hasn't heard these truths and share with them some of the things that God brought to your attention this morning as we have come into the sanctuary with the people of God, with the Word of God as our guide and the Holy Spirit as our teacher, will you do that? And let me say, I hope you'll be here next week. I'm not going to be here, but my friend Dr. Bill Barton will be, and you'll be blessed. And the next Sunday, my friend Al Baker will be here, and Al is a preacher of the Word. I didn't understand until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. Let's meet here again, shall we? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you so much this morning for the privilege to be here, whether we realized it was a strategically important thing for us to do or not, we know from your word it definitely was and is. And I pray that you will bless us because of it and help us to be a witness who experiences your nearness in our lives every day that we live. And Lord, when you're through with us, just call us on home to glory. What a day that will be. Bless these people. You know the needs of their lives. Holy Spirit, apply your word to them and lift them up and encourage them and bless this church. For we ask it together in Jesus' name, amen.